Good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, enlighten our minds and kindle our hearts with the presence of your Spirit, that we may hear your words of comfort and challenge in reading this scripture passage. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kim. Today is, I don't know if you guys know this, today is the first Sunday of Lent. Can you believe that we're already building up to Easter? Uh, 
Easter's early this year. It'll be on March 31st. And Lent is the season in which Christians prepare our hearts for uh, really the whole Holy Week series, uh, most notably Good Friday and then Easter Sunday. So Lent began this Wednesday. It was Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday, uh, this Wednesday was also Valentine's Day, of course. Anybody go to an Ash Wednesday service as your Valentine's date? Anybody? We didn't either. So um, you're off the hook. Uh, So we're in this season of Lent where we're preparing ourselves for Easter. And every year during Lent, I mean, we do this. We're Christians. Like, we think a lot about the cross. But we really zoom in on the cross and the event of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection during this season. And so this year, we're going to ask very simply during Lent on Sunday mornings, what exactly happened at the cross? What exactly happened at the cross? And if you ask most Christians what happened at the cross, they'll, they'll probably tell you something like, and maybe you would say something like this, uh, well, at the cross, Jesus died for our sins. And that is a, that is a great I would argue that is a complete answer. It's so simple, but it's so hard to do better than that. At the cross, Jesus died for our sins. This season, we're going to unpack that simple idea and that simple phrase and see all of the depth of meaning behind it. It's almost like, and this, maybe this is a silly example, this is what came to mind, but remember in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the movie, Maybe the book, too. I'm sure in the book, too. And Willy Wonka has that chewing gum that's a three-course meal in one stick of gum. And so you chew, the, anybody, maybe just me, I'll tell you if you don't remember it. So he, he, Willy Wonka makes candy, and he has this stick of gum, and you chew it, and you get a whole three-course meal. And so you taste, first, I think first it was like tomato soup, and then the flavor transforms into roast beef, and then it's blueberry pie, and you, can, you taste this whole meal through the course of chewing one stick of gum. And then the character Violet kind of grabs it. She's very selfish, and he says, whoa, 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 it's not perfected yet, and she eats it anyway, and she turns into a giant blueberry. Um, That has nothing to do with the metaphor. It's just a funny detail. Um, What we're doing this morning is is kind of like taking this, this simple stick of gum, Jesus died for my sins, and we're popping it in our mouth, and we're, we're thinking deeply about all of the flavors and the textures and the combinations that are contained in this simple statement. Jesus died for my sins. And I hope that as a result of this, come Good Friday and especially come Easter morning, that you and I, all of us, will be really even more just gobsmacked by the depth of God's love for us, that he would do what he has done, that he would come and become human, he would live, he would die, that he would be raised again from the dead in order to make all things new. That's where we're going broadly these next, well, the next month and a half or so. Now this morning, you could say that we're focusing on the simple word for, in that phrase, Jesus died for my sins. And when we know this, it's, it's maybe the, the, the most surface level meaning, and yet there's so much to it. What does it mean that Jesus died for my sins. We're thinking about a theme of substitution, really. What does it mean that Jesus became your and my substitute? That on the cross, he took our place. And we're going to get there by looking at one of, I think, the most challenging and hardest to understand and maybe hardest to preach texts in the Bible. 
This is an event, even as you're reading it, you might be thinking, gosh, this is awful. That God calls Abraham, who is the father of our faith, to sacrifice his own son, Isaac. Now, I'll say at the outset, this is, this is a really challenging text. It's a really challenging event. And we're not, let's just face it, we're not going to fully understand it. And it's going to bring up some questions that we just won't have time to address this morning. And so I know that I'm probably leaving questions on the table that you have that I won't answer. And if you want, I would love, like after the service, let's talk more. And I'll probably say something like, I don't know, but let's figure this out together. Because there is mystery to God and what God does. In fact, I come back to this theme a lot. If you could understand every single thing that God did or said, then he wouldn't really be God. If, if you had to understand everything he said in order for him to be God, then he's not actually God. You are because he's submitting to your sense of understanding of what's good and right and just. I say that just to, to encourage you, let there be some mystery in this. You don't have to fully resolve every question in order to follow Jesus. You can't. And that's really what we're thinking about this morning. The question that most of us think when we read this about this event in Abraham's life is a good one. It's actually not what I'm going to preach on, but this is a big enough one that I do have to touch on it. And the question is this, why would God ask Abraham to do something so awful? Let's just name it. Why would God ask Abraham to do something so awful? And the short response, again, you could spend a whole sermon on this and we won't, but the short response is read the first verse of Genesis 22. It says, God tested Abraham. Whether we're talking about a test in school, whether you're talking about a stress test in some sort of warehouse or a factory environment where you're stress testing a product, whether you're talking about the test that the doctor said you need to go to the lab and have these tests done, tests do really two things. First, they tell you where are you at right now, and secondly, are there any adjustments you need to make to improve in the future? Tests are both diagnostic and they're meant to make us better. When we remember that God is testing Abraham, in a sense, it's an evaluation to see where is Abraham at. And it is meant to strengthen Abraham's trust in God. And I know that's not a full answer and you probably have other questions and that's all you're getting on that one this morning. Sorry, ask me later. <laughs> because this morning we're considering almost the reverse side of the same coin, another important aspect of this event. And this is one we don't talk about as much, mostly because preachers preach, you know, we preach first verse one and then verse two and verse three. And so we get so hung up on the test thing and try to explain that and we get carried away because, you know, preachers get carried away. And then we realize, oh shoot, it's almost time to wrap up and I've got to land this plane. And we say just a few words about this last thing and then we move on. This morning, we're considering the question, not so much why would God ask Abraham to do something so awful, but why would Abraham agree to do something so awful? Why would Abraham agree to this? What is it in Abraham that actually made him go? When God said, go and sacrifice your son, what in Abraham compelled him to get his son and to get the elements for a burnt offering 
and go up that mountain. Now to flesh this out and to start understanding this a little bit more at least, we have to remember where has Abraham been up until now? Because this moment and this event did not happen in a vacuum. This is not the first time Abraham had experienced God. Far from it. We first meet Abraham, if you read through Genesis, in Genesis 12. We first really meet him in Genesis 12. There's a little mention in Genesis 11. But in Genesis 12, God comes out of nowhere. Abraham, as far as we know, doesn't know God, is not following God. He's probably practicing a different religion. And God just says, Abraham, I want you to pack your bags. I want you to pack your family and move. And I'm not even going to tell you where I'm moving you to. You just need to move and I'll just start walking and I'll let you know when you've arrived. Now, Abraham is living in Ur, which is in modern-day Iraq. And he moves all the way to what God tells him will be the promised land, roughly in modern-day Israel. It's about a thousand miles away. And God says, when you move, I will give you a place to call home, land. I will give you people and offspring. I'll give you a family. That's important because in the Old Testament times especially, family was so part and parcel of how you measured your identity. And Abraham and his wife had no children. They had no way of continuing their family line. That's a cloud that hangs over all of early Genesis. In fact, you get all the way to Genesis 21, the chapter right before this morning's event, and Abraham and Sarah still have no children. Now God has promised Abraham, you will have children of your own with your wife Sarah. And by this time, by the time Abraham arrives in the promised land, he's 75. I'm going to let you just do some math here. And Sarah, his wife, is 10 years younger than him, so she's 65 no kids. And 25 years later, we read in Genesis 21, I'm going to compress the story, Sarah gets pregnant and has a son, Isaac. Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90. You're doing the math, right? There are some of you in this room, I got to be careful here, there are some, (laughs) some of you in this room are in your 80s, you are younger than Sarah was when she had a baby, Isaac. That's stunning. I was, I was informed uh, by an OB physician just this year, rather brusquely, that we don't use the phrase geriatric pregnancy anymore. We, we prefer the phrase advanced maternal age, right? So everything's becoming a euphemism. Look, if you're 90, that's a geriatric pregnancy. I don't care who you are. It does not look like there is any hope for God to follow through on his promise to give Abraham and his wife Sarah a son. And when she is 90, Abraham's wife Sarah gives birth to a baby boy, Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. You know why? Because when Abraham and Sarah heard that she was pregnant, they laughed just like you and I did just now. It's outrageous. And God gives Abraham and his wife the son that he's been promising them for decades. We cannot understand Genesis 22 without understanding Genesis 21. We cannot understand why Abraham would follow God if we don't understand how profoundly God has come through in the past. And little side note, you and I will not follow God when he asks us to do something really hard 
without remembering how God has come through for us in the past. It is so important for us to remember the work of God, even in our lives over the years. That becomes the fuel that helps us to follow him wherever he has for us next. Isaac is nothing short of a miracle. So when God says to Abraham, I want you now to take your son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, you know that in the back of Abraham's mind, as hard and painful as that is, that Abraham is thinking God has already proven himself and done the impossible. He gave us a place when we had no place. He gave us a home when we had no home. He gave us a son when we had no son. In fact, this is just one brief, I won't dig too deeply into this, but even the word choice, I was struck by this this week, that even the word choice, if you read Genesis 12, the first few verses, and then Genesis 22, the first few verses, Genesis 22 is almost a mirror image linguistically of Genesis 12. It's as if the author of Genesis is communicating even through word choice and sentence structure and grammar, we've been here before. God has provided and done the impossible before, so why wouldn't he now? Abraham has already experienced God's past faithfulness in outrageously miraculous ways. And because God has proven himself to be reliable in the past, Abraham knows that he is reliable now. Now we get to the text. And I want to zoom in really on verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, Genesis, if you have your Bible open, Genesis 22 verse 7 might be the most, it's one of the most heartbreaking verses I know of in the Bible. You have this interaction between Abraham and his son Isaac. Isaac knows enough to know a little bit of what's going on. They're getting ready to offer a burnt offering to God. He says, Dad? And Abraham says, yes, my son. That little, by the way, that little my son, like that just twists the dagger, doesn't it? Yes, my son. He says, Dad, we have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the lamb? It's just pregnant with the anticipation and sorrow. How do you think Abraham's feeling when he hears Isaac ask that question? And if verse 7 is the most heartbreaking in all of Genesis, maybe verse 8 is one of the most ruggedly reassuring. What does Abraham say? He responds, he says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide the lamb. Now, I never noticed this until just this week. If it was me, if I was in this situation, I think my faith would basically, like, if, even if I'm going, I, was, I, would, I would hedge, right? I would, I would say something as vague as possible so that like somewhere within what I said, you can find the truth of it. Dad, where's the lamb? God's got a plan. God's going to do something, right? I don't know what he's going to do. At least think I believe him enough to know he's going to do something. I don't know what he's going to do. What does Abraham say? Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. That's very specific. Why get that specific? Why name a lamb? I think because Abraham knows if God has been this good to him up to now, why would God stop now? 
Which is not to say that this was easy for Abraham. Let's be very clear about this. I, I imagine, I don't know what's going on in Abraham's mind. By the way, it was a three days journey to get up. So like Abraham has three days to sweat this one out. You know, his mind is more like a raging ocean than a, you know, a clear lake. But he went. I think the fact that this must have been difficult teaches us a little bit about what, you know, we think about the word faith. And in English, we have the faith and we have a word trust in both Greek and Hebrew. Old Testament is written in Hebrew almost exclusively, New Testament in Greek. In both Greek and Hebrew, it's one word for both faith and trust. And maybe that could be helpful in a sense, because sometimes we think faith and we mean kind of blind faith, but it's a little bit thin and it means, okay, I mentally assent to something. Trust, trust means like there's action behind it. It's rugged faith. It's faith that is rugged enough to actually take the next step. Abraham trusted God. And so he went. He remembered that at the very beginning of his story with God, God had said, I will give you a place. I will give you land. I will give you a place to call home. And he has. And God said, I will give you a son. And he has. In fact, in Genesis 21, God doesn't only give him a son, but then he promises Abraham through Isaac. He names Isaac. And God says, through Isaac will your offspring be reckoned or be counted. God has promised that Isaac will be the son who will give Abraham his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his great-great-great and so on and so on. And so he does the impossible and he goes remembering God's promise. Now you and I are thinking at this point, like that sounds like more than I can handle. That's how I feel at least. And it is. It is. There's a, um, there's a phrase I hear every now and then. People will say, you know, they'll say, uh, sometimes people even have said this is in the Bible. I don't know where it is in the Bible. They'll say, God never gives us more than we can handle. I'll tell you what, as I read scripture and even as I see, as I see people's life experience, yes, he does. Yes, he does. There's nowhere in scripture that says that God won't give you more than, than we can handle. But there are a lot of places in Scripture that also say that no matter what, God will be with you in it. In fact, maybe God intentionally gives us more than we can handle because it forces us to trust him and to know him. So Abraham went. Now there's this interesting little, if we pause, you know, keep your thumb in um, Genesis. And if you're really fast in your Bible, this is like those old Bible drills. Remember those? You can flip to Hebrews 11. If not, you can just listen to me read it. There's this little interesting note about Abraham in Hebrews 11 that helps us to make sense of what's going on here. Let me read this for you. By faith, actually, let's say this. By trust, Abraham... When God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned, I love this, the author of Hebrews is giving us, I think, a window into Abraham's mind here. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. 
Isn't that a great little turn there? Now we have to ask, how did Abraham receive Isaac back from the dead? To understand this, I want to go back to Genesis. Back to this crushing little conversation in verses 7 and 8. Dad, yeah, yes, my son. We have the fire, we have the wood, where's the lamb? And what does Abraham say? God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And just in time, I mean, at the last possible moment, God intervenes and he stops Abraham. And what happens next? God provides a lamb. Genesis said it was a ram, but that's just a male lamb. Like, you get this, right? Exactly what Abraham said God would do, God does. Verse 13, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Underline that phrase. Instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, some of you know this. The Hebrew way of saying the Lord will provide is a little Hebrew phrase. We would say Jehovah Jireh. That's just Hebrew for the Lord will provide. Maybe you've heard that phrase. Literally, the word Jireh in Hebrew means to see. The Lord sees. Jehovah Jireh literally means the God who sees. Who sees what? God, I don't see a way out. But you do. He sees, he knows, he provides. In this case, what does he provide? A substitute. A ram, a lamb to take Isaac's place. Remember, this is Lent. We're working towards Easter. And as we approach especially Good Friday, we're asking, what was it that happened at the cross Here's one of those, the courses of that meal, as it were. What's going on at the cross as Jesus is hanging there, the life seeping from his lungs? God himself is providing a lamb for the offering. He's been doing it, we see now in Genesis 22, from the very first pages of your Bible. And he's been doing it all the way through to the end most fully in his son, Jesus. Jesus, who is somehow fully God, he is God, became human in order to take our place, to be our substitute, to die so that you and I don't have to. Death, the Bible teaches us this, and we, like, we kind of know this from experience too. Death is just the consequence for sin. Go to page two of your Bible. God puts Adam in the garden to work it, and there are two trees, and he says, you can eat from any tree except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what happens? Adam trusts his own wisdom instead of God's wisdom. That's just all sin is. 
and it introduces death into the world. Now, death, it, it, it does introduce, like, death in a more cosmic, eternal sense, you know, end of life, death. But when we think about it, sin introduces a thousand little deaths into the world. I mean, every day. It is big and cosmic, but it is very local and specific as well. Think with me. Every time there is a sin, there is a small death. When, 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 when somebody just cuts you off in conversation, essentially says, what I have to say is more important than what you have to, have to say. What is it? There's a little death there, right? A little death in the relationship. When you share information about somebody else that's really not yours to share, it's theirs to share, what's going on? There's a little death. There's a breakdown of trust now in the relationship. When we get short with our family or with our coworkers or with whoever, there's, there's a little death that happens. You don't have to work that hard to realize that every sin introduces some sort of little death into the world. And thousands of little sins generate thousands of little deaths. And if we're being honest and if we really start to, to take stock of it all, we realize there's so much that we can't possibly fix it all. We can't even identify it all. And there is also this problem of like the big hulking eternal death. Death at the end of life. So sin not only means the little deaths, but it means in the big picture, we, we all die. And not one of us, unless Jesus comes back before this, not one of us will escape this. We thought about this pretty pointedly last week. God, here's the good news. God, in his love, sent his son to be our substitute which means that the death we should experience and we should undergo, Jesus took upon himself. As Jesus hung on the cross, he died our death so that we can live his life. There's this mysterious divine transaction that takes place in that moment. We know this for God so loved the world, you've heard this, right? That he gave his one and only son, only begotten, if you want to say it in the King James, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. By the way, do you hear the parallel there? In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, take your only son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him, which is to say, give him up. And in John 3, John keys in on the relationship and the connection between Jesus and Isaac and says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the one who was promised, the one through whom all of his offspring would come. In Jesus, God himself provided a lamb. In fact, in Jesus, God himself became the lamb. Somehow, God became human, became one of us, made our death his death so that his life could become ours. Here's how uh, the Apostle Paul kind of puts this little commentary. Here's how he explains it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, For our sake, 
God made him, he's talking about Jesus, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which is why early in John's gospel, twice actually in John chapter 1, John the Baptist is doing his thing and he's baptizing people and he sees Jesus and he just, he can't even help himself. He just blurts out. What does he say? You remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our substitute. He took the place that we should inhabit. He died the death that we should die so that we can live his life. God himself will provide the lamb. God himself has provided the lamb. God himself became the lamb. He is our substitute and therefore he is our life. Amen.